Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, a podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, James Markey, bass trombonist of the Boston Symphony, joins us. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined, as always, by Nick Schwartz. Now, Nicholas, we got to hang out in Michigan, and that was pretty awesome. We did. It seems almost like a, a fleeting memory at this point. It was really strange to be around other humans. We all got tested, and we were all clear. And we got to eat way too many Coney dogs and (laughs) go on the boat as much as possible. I think I was hounding you to go on the boat every single day. Yeah. Well, we got out. It was beautiful weather, which was really nice, which is July is pretty solid. So it was very nice to get out in the boat and hang out and play trombone and do all those things. And for all the unknowns of doing a completely different format, it, you know, it wasn't perfect tech wise, but it pretty much exceeded my expectations. Me too. Me too. It, it It went really well. Yeah, we're all kind of figuring everything out on on the fly here, and I think everything considered, it, it was good. I would, the feedback was good. Uh, for those of you listening who didn't catch the Trombone Retreat live, you can si- still sign up and watch masterclasses and everything. Everything's documented, and it's all available until September. Yeah, just go to the Trombone Retreat website and fill out the form, and you can get all the same content. Uh, Yeah, we had over 500 register, which was insane to think about, since we usually, the whole point of the retreat is it's a real small, kind of intimate, personal thing. We usually only accept 20 overall students, tenors, and bases. And so this year, we had the cool opportunity to open it up, and it just ended up being this whole thing. All the classes were really fun, all the all the live chats, all the guest artist Q&As. We, we just had a really good time, and you know, it was really good to see my friend Nick in real mm-hmm. life and not just on a computer screen. Yeah. <laughs> until, until 2021. <laughs> yes. Um, Hopefully, that'll be in person. Yes. Well, we had a great talk with Jim. We both, uh, Sebastian studied with Jim. I I technically went to school with him, <laughs> even, <laughs> even though we there's a, a age gap between us. He went, you'll, he'll, you'll hear in the episode, he came back to school to finish up his studies. Yeah. I mean, it was really special for me to be able to interview my old teacher, especially because he profoundly changed my life in a lot of ways. And we'll get into more into that in the outro, but... Yeah, he was he was very candid with us and very open with us about all his unique experiences so far. And I think a lot of people will be surprised a lot of the things he's gone through. Yeah, you know, I think I think it'll be reassuring that um, even someone so excellent does have human flaws. <laughs> Shocking. He's a human being. So it was it was interesting. And yet, like you said, very nice to hear how open he was talking about things that he went through personal conflict playing stuff yeah and you know it's 
I think he just kept his head on his shoulders and plowed ahead and got through things. Awesome. Well, let's jump in. All right. Enjoy the interview. Enjoy. Fine, we're getting started early. Oh yeah, I should have. I should have known. I should have known to be early. Well, I didn't know how things are going to work out. So you may. It's it's entirely possible my dog could go on a barking jag, or Perfect. my kids could go Fine. on a screaming fit. I uh, <laughs> I did a Q and A with a young man recently, and I listened back to it within the first five minutes. I hear one of my kids say, "No, no, no." And so was he just really disagreeing with what you were saying in the interview? <laughs> I'm in I'm in the office. It's like the cupboard under the stairs in Harry Potter. Uh, it's not exactly the cupboard under the stairs, but it's very it's right next to where the stairs go down. So it's uh, I imagine taking the space as you can get it in a house full of like four kids and a wife is just any victory. <laughs> oh, man. Just just to have. It. Yes, exactly. And I could always change this this door here, which is just a. You know, like passageway closet door, I can always swap it out for a larger front door kind of door that has more soundproofing in it. But I just I don't see the point in that. So, <laughs> how has it been with the kids and all that with doing with online everything? And has that been a really tough transition? As I imagine, it's been. I'll be honest. By the time we got finished with the end of uh, the end of uh, getting in the middle of June, we were all saying, "Okay, enough of this." I mean it. You know, when you're doing ensembles that typically will rehearse, all of our kids are involved in NEC prep, and three of them were involved in an orchestra. And they were all having recordings that were due. And, you know, this one thing to show up at NEC prep, you do your, your rehearsal, and then maybe you practice your part on your own. But it's another thing to say, okay, now instead of practicing your part on your own, we're going to give you a recording. You need to set up all of your recording equipment, listen to it, play along with it, try not to make any mistakes, like make a file, make sure there's no background noise, and do that for everyone. And so by the time you start to do that, listen, I understand people wanting, you need to have an ensemble experience. But when we had four people, at one point we had five, five meetings going on all at the same time. They were all Zoom meetings. Because we had uh, one in an ensemble, one in music theory, one in group class. I was doing trombone choir, and then there was another. There was another ensemble. I can't remember what it was. We had five meetings going on at once. It was like, okay, we we got it. We're zoomed out. But now that we're in the summertime, things are a lot calmer. So, with the trombone choir, I'm curious about that because I, I run trombone choir at, at Juilliard Pre College. How are you? How do you, you do this at uh, NEC? Yeah. Um, yep. how, how did you do it? How did you do the online from Choir? That's a really good question. So we transitioned from the, obviously, the performance format to more a masterclass kind of format. So what we wound up doing is we would start off, we would chat, we'd have a topic that we talk about, uh, some trombone-related topic. Uh, we would typically listen to something and sort of uh, listen to it together, talk about it. I might show something, or at one point I had the students do a project where they played duets with themselves. They used a cappella to do a short, you know, bit of a Telemann canonic sonata, or just play octaves with themselves, do some kind of simple duet, uh, so they can work on intonation and balance and bringing out a line. We did try to put to put a piece together, but I that didn't really materialize. Uh, I didn't specifically ask for institutional support, and it would have been there if I'd asked for it, but I thought I could handle it and. I think the students were so zoomed out that, that we had some students who were like getting stuff there. And then other students who were, uh, I was just saying, 
I only need you to do this one segment of your part. Can you record these 20 seconds? Mm. And would have a hard time just getting 20 seconds. So everyone's just trying to make it up as we go. Right. <laughs> there's there's not a rule book. We can do. Um, yeah. And that's what basically every band director across the country, every ensemble director at every university is going to be facing when fall comes around. So, you know, it's, it's an opportunity maybe to, you're going to have to approach everything in a completely different way and, and see if we can find some way to make it still educational, but yep. open our minds to like, finding creative ways to keep people engaged and to learn. You're right. right. Well, one of the things that we can do is you, know, you can start to elucidate, a, you know, just start to make a list on things that you learn by playing in ensembles. And so given all those things that you can learn, how much of that can you learn without being an ensemble? And, and then incorporate all of those components in whatever we do online. That's sort of what I'm figuring out to do with my trombone choir next year. I think we may do an alternating week format that one week is a masterclass and then the next week we're more focused on ensemble kind of material. And it might be really listening to an ensemble. It might be looking at what we've put together for that two week period and see where it stands and what needs to come out, what needs to change, what notes, you know, maybe needing to change intonation on notes or whatever. And then the next week, go back to a masterclass format so that people aren't doing weekly recordings, but bi-weekly recordings. And there's a little time to, be able to put that together into a file for us to be able to listen to. That's that's sort of where where I'm thinking of right now for the uh, for the fall. I like that. Um, I like the idea of uh, you, you talked about playing octaves with yourself or playing duets with yourself, um, and that definitely falls under the category of what we learn in ensembles, which you know, which is playing in tune, playing in balance with each other. I mean, you're just kind of, you're doing it with yourself. I like that idea. I'm going to steal that from you. Oh, but. <laughs> It's not stealing. By all means, borrow it. I mean, dude, 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 we all need to function. We all need each other to figure out how we can continue on musical education when we yeah. can't be there. I know. It's it's tough. It's tough. Well, speaking of which, you literally have a string quartet in your house now. So I guess that's a built-in benefit for your kids that they can be able to play with musicians and have, you know, repertoire. So, I mean, so your kids... Remind me of the ages. So Eleanor's 15 and Jamie's 12 and Thomas is eight and William's five. Okay. So if you weren't busy enough already, you're you're incredibly busy all the time. And so, so, so it's violin, double bass, cello, and viola that you have. So you've just abandoned all brass playing. You're just like, don't go down this path. I went down. (laughs) I have an update on that one. Uh Oh yeah, actually. So Thomas has finished second grade and He's never seemed all that enthusiastic about the cello. You know, you can tell you're when time to practice and, you know, there's struggling to get practicing. And so we just said, Thomas, if there were another instrument that you could play, what instrument would that be? He said, not trombone. I said, really? Why? He said, oh, it's because, uh, I don't know, I like the trombone. And so Thomas is now in, today will be day 85. Wow. Of his 100-day trombone practice challenge. And this kid, in, in 15 days, he'll have played for 100 days. Do you know the Brad, the Brad Edwards uh, Intermediate Trombone book? Oh, no, I haven't seen that yet. Okay. It's, it's, it's great for it's, – it's beyond beginners. So let's say like the essential elements for band, the Hal Leonard series, is good for starters. About halfway through that book – we were about halfway through that book around day 45 or so. So then we switched to Brad Edwards' Intermediate Trombone book. And 
So we're going slowly through it. We're on basically the fourth unit now. But, you know, Thomas hasn't been playing for three months yet. It's not even three months he's been playing. And he's lip slurring up to a high B flat now. And you said he's he's eight? He's eight. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, what? one of the things I was telling one of my – a student I saw yesterday, a bass traumatist, we were talking about playing in the upper red of suit. I was saying how important it is to play Bordoni as written, the Rochu Fisher series, play it as written, not just down the octave. He said, oh, really work in the upper register. I said, this isn't the upper register. This is the middle register. And then I, tell, I told him, I said, how much do you bench press? He said, well, I'm shooting to go for 320, but right now I'm in the mid, the mid, uh, you know, mid to upper 200s. I said, okay. My eight-year-old son is playing a high B-flat. Do you think he can bench press more than you can? Do you, do you think he's got stronger face than you have? So what's the difference? The difference is that Thomas doesn't think that the high notes are high. And so he's wow. not encumbered by, oh, gee, it's hard to play a high B-flat. He's just saying, oh, yeah, it's a high B-flat. Okay, that's, that's, that's part of what you do when you're a trombonist. And so he doesn't have the psychological hurdles. Now, it's not a great high B-flat. <laughs> but he's working towards it. He was really excited when he, you know, squeezed out the. Whoa! I said, yeah, you go and a high five. You know, high fives all around. That's that's awesome, dude. You know, and uh, it just goes to show you. You put twenty five minutes. He's his practice sessions are fifteen to twenty five minutes, maybe thirty. But if you put 15 to 25 minutes every day into a task and it's a good focused amount of time, you can accomplish a lot. So that's a long answer to the question of <laughs> any brass players. I don't know. I think anytime I go to practice, I say time to practice trombone. He's like, okay. And he hears, I mean, he hears dad doing it all the time. And it's like, if dad can sound like this, this is, this is easy. <laughs> when you have a, when you have a, a professional trombonist in your family or professional musician in your family, Doing what they do isn't like, oh my gosh, I'm doing that. It's like, oh yeah, that's what we do. I mean, it's probably mainly because cello probably just didn't offer enough repertoire choices. <laughs> so he he really just he's like trombone. That's 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 where it's at. Um, but I, I I remember talking to you about you know working with Eleanor because I was studying with you when Eleanor was gosh, how old was she? Like seven. Yeah. At the time, when did we? Maybe. Well, when did we? When did we start working together? Was it that had to be 2007. That sounds about right. Two thousand eight to two thousand ten, maybe. Okay, so she was four. Oh my gosh! So I, she was just starting violin, I think. I, um, actually, no, she was three in two thousand eight. She was three. Oh wow! Okay, I remember. Yeah, so I would you know visit you, and she would of course be speaking like she was fifteen. But I remember one one thing, and I want to kind of get into you know development and how young people learn, and and, and kind of get into the process with you, how how you learned so quickly. And something I really liked that you said was with her, you never forced her to play, but you said if you want to play violin, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said if you want to play violin, you can, and that's great, but you have to practice like 15 minutes a day, or you just made some deal. So it's like she owned it. Yeah, well, that's that's absolutely right. I mean, with her, it was a question of if you want to play an instrument, you're going to have to practice. Oh, I want to play violin. And part of her interest in that was it's, it's actually really interesting. So when she started having an interest in violin was in winter of 2007, which happened to coincide with the period that I was preparing for the bass trombone audition at the Philharmonic, because that audition was in April of 07. So I was practicing a ton. 
And my wife, Elizabeth, I think she was practicing harp for uh, a concerto performance. She was certainly doing a good bit of harp playing. And Eleanor was saying, well, I want an instrument of my very own. Because she saw mom would go and sit down and play, and I'd go sit down and play, and we'd close the office door and don't bother dad because he's practicing when he's practicing. We don't bother him when he's practicing. And she wanted an instrument of her very own. And uh, so she was watching uh, this video, uh, Barney the Purple Dinosaur, called Let's Make Music. And there was a little girl named Melanie who played the violin, and she said, well, I want to play violin just like Melanie. And that's how she got on violin. So she started when she was, she actually took her first violin lesson three days after her oldest younger brother, Jamie, was born. She took her first violin lesson. It was actually a great, it was a great time to do it because now I could have some time with her practicing. And listen, it wasn't always easy. Sometimes it was dragging the violin out of the case. But it's funny that you mentioned remembering her playing because one of the things that was eye-opening for Elizabeth, my wife and I, was when you guys came over, so you remember, I, I for, for Nick, I, I would always have my students over once a year or twice a year. And Sebastian okay. came over with everybody else. And uh, at that moment, Eleanor brought her violin out so she could play for everyone. And understand, a month into it, the, the, the novelty of playing the violin had worn off. And it was, oh, gee, I got to go practice this thing now. But the moment people were there and she was able to pull out her instrument and play Twinkle Variations, or Lightly Row, which is about where she was by that point, was, oh my gosh, she wants to use this to perform. How can we maximize this? So then we tried to make practice sessions into performances for her various stuffed animals, whether it be Pink Teddy or... (laughs) I remember this game that we used to play. So we had these... these, uh, they're called little people and we had the, the castle series and there was this knight that his name was sir wolfred and we used to play this game as fly sir wolfred fly and so if she did something five times in a row well i had a ruler and a pencil and so i set it up so that the, the pencil was here and the ruler was here and sir wolfred was on this end and if she did it five times i'd bang on this end and say fly sir wolfred fly and bang and he'd go flying through the air <laughs> And it was always a, a game to see how fast, how far we could make him go. So that was Eleanor. You know, for me, I mean, oh, getting to our kids, just finishing through, we really decided, Elizabeth and I have decided that all of our kids are going to play an instrument. They can choose which instrument they do, but they're going to play one because we believe that that musical education of sitting down and needing to practice something uh, is important. And I mean, the truth of it is if they were more athletic than musically inclined, we'd be perfectly happy to see them. Okay. You're going to go to practices. You're going to try to get better at your soccer or your tennis or whatever. We would do that, but we're not an athletic family and I'm not pigeonholing my kids. It's just it's sort of where we are, but they do seem to have an understanding of music. And part of that's because we've instilled an understanding in them from when they were very, very young. And with things like Music Together, which, hey, Music Together LLC, if you don't know anything about Music Together, you can check it out. It's great. It's it's basically really early childhood musical education geared for six months to three years that you do with the parent. So at any rate, all of our kids play something. So Jamie, who's eight, uh, no, who's 11, no, who's 12, (laughs) (laughs) Jamie, who's 12, uh, started off on violin and he hated every moment of it. 
And so at one point after a terrible practice session, we took the violin away. He said, no, no, don't take it away. Don't take it away. We put it in the closet for a week. At the end of a week, we said, all right, you want to bring the violin down? No. <laughs> no. All right. So we got uh, – we went a little bit way about the other year and a half, and then Jimmy started to play classical guitar because he likes pop songs. He seems to like pop music. Michael Jackson, he liked Michael Jackson. We thought, well, what about guitar? So then we did Suzuki guitar. Guitar is good for the ladies too. Yes. And we did guitar for about a year and a half. But it it, it wasn't really sticking. He was okay with it. Uh, and we said, we said, all right, what he needs now is he – he really likes teams. He really likes, even though he's not terribly athletic, he likes to be part of a larger group. We need something he can do with orchestra, but also to have versatility. What's that? Double bass. All right, Jamie, let's try, let's try double bass for you. Let's see how that works, because you can play in an orchestra, but you can also play in a band. You can learn jazz. You know, If you think differently, if you don't like reading the notes that are on the page, but you like making stuff up, that's a great vehicle. Um, so he's now played bass since, uh, and he was also in the third grade at this point. So that's how he winds up playing bass. Thomas started playing cello just because we delayed Thomas starting on something. He's our, now our eight-year-old for so long because he just wasn't ready to start an instrument. So we started him on cello and William on violin at the same time. He's our youngest. He's five. But William decided, about four months into it, his violin teacher also plays viola and has viola students. And so he wound up saying, you know, when am I going to, he said, when am I going to get my own C-string? He said, well, William, <laughs> you don't play viola, you play violin. Violins don't have a C-string. But, but I want a C-string. Well, you don't have a C-string, but I want a C-string. <laughs> and what we found, he has a C-string now. He switched over to viola about four or five months into his violin studies. He's happy as a clam. And so... To answer, you know, sometimes you ask the question, do, does the student choose the instrument? Does the instrument choose the student? I kind of feel like in the Harry Potter series, for example, the wand chooses the wizard. In this case, the viola spoke to him very specifically. He wanted the sound of that C string, and he did not have a necessity for the E string. So I'm sorry, I'm really rambling. I'm not intending <laughs> well, to. But, no, it's okay. Well, we have to warning. we have to warn you, Jim. You've made two Harry Potter references. We have a strict three uh, Harry Potter reference <laughs> limit on this podcast. <laughs> oh, really? What's what's the set? Uh, I've only done the wand juice of the wizard. But what other Harry Potter? You also said you're like Harry Potter because you're in your office underneath the stairs. Oh gosh! Thank you for letting thank you for letting me know. You got, you got right. one more. You got one more. All right, I'll make <laughs> so sure it counts. So let's talk about young Jim Markey, yeah, young James. Sure, absolutely. So, so you're growing up in New Jersey, yeah, correct? Yeah. So when did you and you had? I remember you telling me you had a a lot of brothers. Was it? I have How an many older siblings brother and a younger sister and a younger brother. Okay. Yeah. So so another you know four child household. So you're used to kind of a busy yeah. house. The second of four, and I relate with my eldest son because he's the second child in the family and a lot of parallels um so yeah i was actually going to get to talking about me because you know who, who doesn't like to talk about themselves <laughs> that's where you're here for me <laughs> so talking about myself okay so as far as this is as far as my own background financially our family just didn't have a whole lot of resources so for us music was something that we did for enjoyment and i remember um you know one of the earlier childhood experiences i had was singing uh, the Ballad of the Christmas Donkey. And so for me, actually, a lot of my musical background was just was singing in choirs. Uh, my uncle was an organist, so we'd follow him when he, when he, if he moved to church, we'd, we'd be in whatever choir he was. And that was our, our church commitment was actually following him. 
that he was my entryway, by the way, into playing organ. But uh, so I actually started, it, my older brother was really good looking, gregarious, outgoing. Everybody loved him. I was a natural introvert. I mean, really introverted. Found it very difficult to talk to people I didn't know. Really liked to stick to myself. Didn't know what to say. So everybody loved George. And, you know, I kind of felt like I was in his shadow a lot of the time. And then we got to taking piano lessons at the same time. And I realized there was something about reading the music that clicked with me, that just the ability, the associating the note on the page with a given note on the piano, it kind of made sense. I don't know if it's geographically or rationally or logically, it made sense. Uh, that didn't with my older brother. And so I felt like, finally, here's something. I mean, even as a five-year-old, you can say, relative to my older sibling, I'm, I'm kind of good at this. And so when you feel like you're good at something, you want to keep doing it. So I kept up with piano until I was, uh, well, actually kept up with piano all through high school, but studied on and off. I actually, my first wind instrument was clarinet. I studied that. How did you get into the clarinet? Was it, was it the instrument chose you or were you interested in it or what happened? So I really loved my grandfather, my mom's dad, and he played in a big band when he was younger. Uh, he played uh, saxophone, but he also had a wooden clarinet, a uh, really nice clarinet that he loved. And he would pull it out from time to time to play. And I thought, well, I'd like to play clarinet like, you know, like Pop-Pop. So my, my dad's mother had found a clarinet in their attic, a nickel clarinet, one piece. Ooh, uh, yeah. wound, up getting, wound up getting sat on, got a bow in it like this. Mm-hmm. But uh, it sounded kind of like a party horn. But, but I played that for about two years. And then we got to fifth grade band. And I had the opportunity to choose an instrument. And like a younger brother who still idolizes their older brother, I decided I wanted to play trumpet, just like my older brother. And he said, Jimmy, why don't you play something else? Why don't you play trombone? Because I already play trumpet. I can't say that I had a yearning desire to play trombone or that I fell in love with it. But I remember I didn't want to play clarinet or flute or saxophone. And then my choices were trumpet, trombone, or 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 drum set. I didn't want to do drum set and I couldn't do trumpet. So what do I want to do? All right, I'll do trombone. So as a fifth grader going into band, there there were a lot of challenges which I didn't have to overcome. I knew how to read bass clef. That was really helpful. I knew what notes should sound like. I wasn't needing to learn how music works because I understood that because I'd played piano for five years already. When it came to playing the instrument, it's really just a matter of operating the device. Where does the slide go? And I already knew in my head what the pitch should sound like. And what I mentioned before with Thomas, uh, with my eight-year-old being on his, his practice challenge now, it's similar. We're in similar places in that he plays cello and he plays piano. So that going to the trombone is just a matter of it's not trying to figure out how to read music. It's just trying to figure out how to make the sound on the instrument decent. Mm, yeah. And that's what I had. So after a few weeks, my band director said, well, you know, actually, you could go into the sixth grade band this year. But if you wait a few weeks, I might allow you to play in the seventh and eighth grade band on a winter concert. I said, well, I'd like to wait a few weeks. I'd like to learn a few more notes. So I waited a few weeks and uh, I joined the seventh and eighth grade band probably in the beginning of November or so. I tell you, having a band program in school for, I was I was uh, picked on a lot. I just had a hard time in school. People didn't like me. Did I didn't have a whole lot of friends. I shouldn't say people didn't like me, but I didn't feel like I had a whole lot of friends. And so when I encountered band all of a sudden there were these big seventh and eighth graders that were really warm and really welcoming and said, 
wow, we got a fifth grader here. Hey, dude, yeah, let's, it's great to have you. Good, we got a trombonist now. This is great. Yes, we got a trombone player. They were happy. <laughs> and I was, I was cool. I mean, I was cool because all these big seventh and eighth graders like thought that I was part of their group. And I, I will never forget that experience of feeling like I finally found a community of people who understood me and mm-hmm. had, we had a common goal that we were all in this together. We all like playing this band stuff. We all like playing music. I, I'm, I bet you guys, you know, in your band programs, probably remember as kids when the band director would say, let's pull out this piece and everyone would say, yes. Or let's pull out this piece and everyone would say, uh. Oh yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's funny how that works, right? That the band program or, you know, there's different clubs and schools and stuff like that. It's, these are the places that people kind of find their, their people, you know, and it doesn't have to be like, Oh, I, I, I didn't like school before. And now I found my place. It could be even people that already were fine with school, but then they just really find their passion. But it's, I think that's what band and, and orchestra programs are for in school. Big more, almost more than making music is like a place to be comfortable and be yourself. You know, Oh, I agree a hundred percent. And for me, it completely changed my outlook on middle school. And, you know, as you said, there are a whole bunch of kids who are perfectly comfortable in their social environment and do band anyway. But the mm-hmm. thing about your band program in school is the kids that are there are there because they want to be there. Yeah. They're not there because they're being dragged there. You know, they're there because they play their instrument because they want to be playing their instrument by and large. I don't right. think there are that many parents that are saying, you need to go practice your clarinet. I think a lot of parents would be happy to not have to hear the clarinet you know, yeah. or, or trombone or whatever case. I'm not pointing out clarinets, but <laughs> yeah, that's that stage in your life. It's just such a, a vulnerable time because you're just so like, you know, you're, you're so pure. I mean, that's why people still remember any sort of traumatic experience at that age, being bullied or anything like it, it's, it's so formative and, and finding your tribe, like, like you guys are saying, I mean, there's nothing like that. And do, by doing that, did you find that you had, it seemed like you loved music from the beginning, but were you already loving practicing? Were you, were you playing all the time at, as a fifth grader, sixth grader? That's a really good question. Uh, I can answer this with a, with an anecdote that I think it was after after graduation of my fifth grade year, I was playing in the band and my my friend the first day of school said, oh, Jim, uh, I my mom brought your trombone with us. You left it in the car all the summer. So I'd gone home with him, forgotten that my trombone had been in their car and just not played it for two months. So, so I still do that. So truthfully, I mean, practicing was always something that I knew that I had to do, but it was on piano first. And then when I started taking organ lessons in sixth grade, I had to practice because I was taking lessons with my uncle. Listen, my uncle is a fantastic person. He's a wonderful human being, but he can, he can, he can get hot. He can have a fiery temper if he feels like you're unprepared or if he feels like you should be able to do something and you're not, he can get frustrated. So I always knew for my lessons, I wanted to be ready. So I was practicing organ every day and I'd go to the church and practice for an hour at least an hour every day, if not an hour and a half or two hours. And my grandmother would sit with me. I didn't have that kind of ethic on trombone until I started to get more serious with it. For me, it was just, it was fun. I was kind of good at it. And, you know, I was good at it in the school. 
And, you know, County Blend, I was first chair of County Band my freshman year of the first of the of the two trombonas, I was first chair. And my freshman year in high school, I remember thinking that yeah, I'm a pretty good trombone player. And I got to area band. And I was uh, I was ninth chair area band. Ooh. And I heard everybody play, and I didn't know why I was ninth chair area band. I thought I should be higher. I thought maybe I should be fourth chair area band. And so I squeaked into region band, and I squeaked into all state. I decided uh, I'm not as good as I think I am. So my mom wound up getting me lessons with a local music teacher named Gary Qualm, who taught me a lot about who taught me about natural slurring. I did, I'd never heard of natural slurring. I always thought you articulate every note. I didn't know oh, that wow. you could cross partials and not articulate. Plus, you know, we talked about scales and some intonation things and just, and the lessons, once again, because we were challenged financially, the lessons couldn't last. But it was enough for me to get going on that my sophomore year, I shocked everybody, myself included, and I got first chair in area band, beating out the senior who had been uh, third chair Allstate the previous year. And then, then I wound up fourth chair in region band, and I wound up first chair Allstate in my in my sophomore year. And it was in my junior year that I met Joe Alessi. I should get back to as a sophomore. As a sophomore, that's when I met met some seniors. One of whom uh, you guys know, Anthony Mizaki, Tony Mizaki. Oh yeah, yeah. And so we played in the same region band and the same Allstate band. And Anthony Tony was the first person who told me that a person could make a career being a trombonist in an orchestra, that that was a thing that you could do. Because I didn't know. And I knew I liked music, and I always imagined that my path to music would be playing in churches like my uncle. Mm. And then when I found out that you can actually be, you know, there's this guy named Joe Alessi. Joe who? Well, Joe Alessi. He plays the New York Philharmonic. You've never heard of Joe Alessi? No, no. I, oh, you know. And Here, you, take this flower and, and climb this mountain, yeah. <laughs> and he'll be there waiting for you. And, uh, and so it was, it was one of those things. That was when I first realized that, wow, I could do this for a living. But even then, you know, I practiced more, but I wouldn't say I really took it seriously until I met Joe and had the opportunity to work with him in my junior year in high school. And Is that Juilliard pre-college? No, actually. In my junior year for the Region Band Festival, Joe came and did a solo. He did Bluebells of Scotland with our Region Wind Ensemble. I happened to be first chair that year, and because of that, I got a chance to play for him in a master class. The conductor of that ensemble was Max Culpepper. And Max and Ginny, uh, Ginny Culpepper sort of relayed to Joe some of my story because she knew my background and history from some of the other uh, band directors. And so I got a message from her or Max, I can't remember, that gave me Joe's phone number and said he'd be willing to work with you. So I called him. I took some lessons in my junior year in high school. And then off I go to Interlochen for two months for the camp. Fantastic experience. Best experience of my life. I was a double major on organ and trombone, and spent probably at least three hours a day practicing organ, and maybe an hour a day practicing trombone, because I would be fried after early morning rehearsals that last two and a half hours and started at 8.20 in the morning. When I came back from Interlochen, I realized I've got to make a choice. And am I going to become an organist who also plays trombone, or do I want to be a trombonist who also plays organ? And I decided that at that point, I need to be a trombonist who also plays organ because I really like organ, but there's something about the trombone that really speaks to me. I'd heard Joe's slide area recording for the first time, my junior year in high school, and I had never heard anything like it. 
not even close. I didn't know that it was possible to sound like that. So what was it like when you when you heard him live for the first time, that Bluebells recording? Was it like trombone sparks? And- <laughs> you know, the, honestly, the trombone sparks, it was, I, I thought it was really cool. I thought, wow, I didn't realize this was possible on a trombone. This is really, really cool playing because obviously he plays it so well. Honestly, it was it was the Rachmaninoff Elegy in E flat that did it for me. I played that track over and over and over again mm. because I had no idea how expressive and powerful the trombone could be. Now, I played my Bordoni and such, but that was the first time I'd ever heard expression like that. That and the Dudoms, the Defy Dudoms, and. Uh, to this day, those two things still stick out in my mind as a tremendous impression that, that I have. It's said that people won't remember what you said, and they won't remember what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Hmm. I can so remember the feeling that I had listening to that album in my band room. I remember the day. I remember that moment because we'd just gotten a new stereo system in the band room. I popped on this album and I was listening to it and I was absolutely blown away. Tears going down saying, I have to do this. This, this speaks to me in such a powerful way. I want to do this. So, you know, over the course of my life, I focused on doing technical things because technical things are not things that I have typically done well. I have to practice them. And I typically program a lot of technical repertoire on recitals and such because it makes me need to practice. But the thing that I really love to do the stuff that I love to do are those those small pieces that I have on a on a program that really are not technical in any way, but allow me to express the introverted side that I have, all the deepest feelings that I have, and express all of that with a live audience. All the stuff that I can't say in an extroverted setting, but that I can speak through the instrument. That's what I love to do, and that's why I play the trombone. Nothing wow. better, right? Yeah. Oh, so just, you know, walking through, so you you finally get to start studying with this person that you had, you know, been idolizing a little bit. What was the transition to studying with a super serious, you know, professional at that point, at that age for you? Oh, I got a, I got a great story about this. So, <laughs> so my very first lesson, I'm in my junior year in high school and Joe says, all right, you have an Arvin book? I said, yeah. I said, bring your Arvin book. So we spent most of the lesson going through the Arden book. Here's how you do this, and here's how you do that, and here's how you approach this. And he wrote down some page numbers. It was seven or eight different sections. I still use that as kind of my Bible, um, <laughs> my, my, my musical Bible, so to speak. Well, then we get to you know our second lesson. We work on some Arden things. Yeah, good job. Things are going well. Second lesson, maybe third lesson. And then I go to Interlochen. And Joe says, you know, I just want to make sure you are coming back from Interlochen, right? I said, yes, I'm coming back. I'm I'm not going to the camp. I'm going to the camp, not the academy. He said, oh, oh, okay, good. So we set up our first lesson for as a senior in high school. So getting ready for college auditions. And I told Joe, I said, you know, Mr. Alessi, I've, I've worked on this uh, the David Constantino. He said, oh, great. I played it for the concerto competition at Interlochen. He said, oh, good. You've put some good practicing into it. Let's, let's bring that into your first lesson. And so we were in Avery Fisher Hall and we spent the first 40 minutes on the first two bars. <laughs> Uh-oh. And I came away from that lesson saying, I will never let this happen again. You know, I, I don't ever want to have this experience again. Because 
you know, part of it was he was never mad, but he was intense and he wanted me to get it. And he was, we were going through all sorts of ways of breaking this down so I could get exactly what the kind of articulation and the exactly the kind of sound and exactly the kind of style that was appropriate for it. And it took us together breaking it down literally for no less than 40 minutes to get it to the point that he could say, all right, now you know what you need to do. And then the rest of the lesson was spent on that opening first phrase. So he spent the entire lesson on about eight bars, 12 bars, 16 bars, David Constantino. And I said, well, this will never happen again. So I worked my butt. I, at that point, I said, okay, now I know what I need to do. That's not going to happen again. It's also the first time I started to record myself. I had never to that point had I been recording myself. So never did I really know what I sounded like. In fact, I remember working on Ride of the Valkyries and the metronome would be going along in the band room like this. And then I'd start to play and the metronome would start doing things like and I'd stop playing, it would be doing this again. I'd say, that's really weird, because every time I start playing, the metronome goes funky. But when I stop, it seems to be solid. <laughs> so <laughs> I still have that problem sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, so actually recording myself and hearing, I didn't always understand if Joe would say, hey, you sound it sounds like you were doing this. I wouldn't always hear it. But when I listened to the recording, I'd hear it so easily. So then I started to record myself more regularly, and I said, this is not going to happen. So that next lesson that I had, the second lesson, I played the opening bar, and he didn't stop me. And I played the rest of the opening phrase. And he'd had his head, I remember the experience, so he'd had his head down like this, and I finished the opening phrase, and he went like this. He put his thumb up. <laughs> and I said, great! And so I went on. So he spent the rest of the lesson on the rest of the first page. So, but that I had never spent that kind of detail on anything trombone related. Because understand with organ, I mean, I'd practiced organ hard. I really had over the summer. So it's not like I'd never practiced. But with organ, if you've got the registration set up well, you press the right key, you get the right note. Right. You press the wrong key, you get the wrong note. And so it's a matter of pressing the right keys at the right time. Now, there is more to it than that. There's elements of uh, technique, you know, out, whether your fingers are relaxed or whether they're stiff, you know, how you, your feet position. But when you play a wind and brass instrument, now there are variations of articulation. You control your dynamic. And there's no set registration. There's so many more variables. And I'd never spent the time dealing with that sheer amount of variables. That was the first time that I'd ever started to look at how much you possibly could work on in your playing hmm. on any given thing. You could work on the articulations. You could work on the dynamics. You could work on the, I mean, forget just the basics like your rhythm and your intonation and your sound. Because within your sound, you've got the articulation. You've got the body of the sound. You've got the middle of the note. You've got the release of the note. You know, you've got your dynamic. Those are five variables just within sound. And, and, and there are more. So he studying with him opened up my eyes to the sheer volume that you can, that there is that one could practice. And so therefore, how much I really did need to practice. It was life changing to look at practicing through that kind of lens. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Someone that 
spent a lesson with you for about half an hour playing the first two notes of Tannhäuser. I, I, I feel like I kind of understand <laughs> now where that came from. No, I, I still tell my students about that. And Did we really spend a half so, an hour on the first two notes of Tannhäuser? It felt like it, but <laughs> it was the most I'd ever spent on two notes, but everything you were saying was so dead on, and I still think about all of that. And I feel very confident anytime I play that now. So you're studying with Joe before college. Obviously, you end up studying with him at Juilliard for a couple years. Mm-hmm. So just moving along a little bit, correct me if I'm wrong with the timeline, but so your first audition was for the Met, right? Like your first semester of your sophomore year? No, is that my right? first audition was for the North Carolina Symphony at oh, the end okay. of my freshman year. And I played three excerpts and they said, thank you very much. Oh, good. As well they should have. <laughs> he is human. As good. well they should have, because I played like they should have said three excerpts and thank you very much. And how'd you feel? Oh, I knew I shouldn't have advanced. I mean, I felt... It, it's funny because I, my first audition, I spent all my good notes in the practice room. Uh-huh. And, you know, started warming up at eight in the morning. I felt like I could do anything. And I walk out on stage at 9.30, quarter till 10, and I barely squeezed out Bolero. And my William Tell was a disaster. And that was a case in point where I'd been preparing for that audition for, for a good solid six weeks, eight weeks. I finished juilliard around the early part of may and the audition was in late may and so the last lessons that i'd had with joe he said you know listen if you get this job i want to make sure you promise me you come back to school so i was playing at least reasonably well to feel like i could you know i might be able to do something with it and i just didn't keep it up i thought okay i'm ready and i let my foot off the gas and the things were not ready i was going through all the right motions but I wasn't really immersed enough in the music and immersed enough in what I needed to do to understand how I wasn't jiving. I was really relying on, I was at a point that if I played something and, and it was out of rhythm and Joe would say, yo, be careful. You don't rush here. I would say, I would make sure, okay, I need to feel like I'm dragging in this spot. And the next lesson, mm. he'd say, okay, that's great. The, ne- the lesson after that, if I played the same thing, he'd say, don't drag there. And then I'd say, okay, now I need to feel like I'm rushing in that spot. And then I'd start to rush, and that lesson, he'd say, yep, that's much better. I didn't really understand. I, I was going through all the right motions, so to speak. For the Met, that was kind of a continuation. That was my second audition. For that audition, I wound up being runner-up when Damien Austin got the job. For that, you were in school with him then at that point, right? Yeah, we were in school okay. together. Yeah, uh, Damien, at uh, that point, would have been a second year. We started the same year, so he would have been a second-year grad student when I was a second-year undergrad student. Mm-hmm. And so when I was runner up and he got the job, my first question was, was like, well, why? Why didn't I get the job? Because I was so prepared. I mean, you have to understand, I would started this list back in July when I got it, when I was at NRO. And I was preparing these 15 short excerpts to be absolutely perfect. And I took a lesson with Mark Gould and with Dave Lamlitz and with Steve Norell, and they all said very similar things about my, which I didn't understand at the time, it sounding like I was kind of missing the forest for the trees. I was doing everything right, but just missing something behind the music, not quite mm. getting it. And I thought, okay, yeah, whatever. And it still went, bam, went over my head. Totally didn't get it. And the truth is, Damien was four years old and he got the music. He was four years older He got how this music worked. He studied with Bear Brevig. He wasn't focused on just the notes or just doing things the right way. And listen, I'm 
this is this this is not any you know, Joe had helped me prepare, so I was completely prepared. There was nothing I could have done differently. I just wasn't ready to win a job at the time. And so then I wound up taking an audition for the Philadelphia Orchestra, for which I was very well prepared in a different way. I had a terrible run at Rhenish. Once again, I spent all my good notes off stage, and I just couldn't play Rhenish. Mm. And yet they had me play it over and over again. I wound up playing. <laughs> so, so the first part of Rhenish, I started blanking, had a hard time. Didn't go well. I did a second run. They asked me to do it again. I did it. I started again, got about halfway through. I went all the way through again. And then they asked me to go to the end of the exit, which is basically the same thing. And I did it again. So I did it either, either four or five times in that audition. And wow. then they had me go on. And continue to play Heldenleben, even though I kind of crashed and burned on Rhenish. <laughs> they heard they heard a lot they liked. They heard a lot they liked. Obviously, it wasn't enough to get me over that hump. That was when Nitzan Herlos got the job. So that was back in 90, 1995. So then I sent a tape to the Minnesota Orchestra, and the tape did not advance. Uh, they, I believe they got 77 tapes or something like that, and only one tape had 77 advance, and it was Doug Wright's. So, wow. So he clearly was qualified and, and well-prepared for that audition. And then the fifth audition I took was for the Pittsburgh Symphony. And that was for a one-year vacancy for the principal trombone. At first, they didn't, they didn't allow you to audition, right? Didn't you have to get written, like Joe, to call them to let you? Well, that's actually the story is that they'd invited a limited and a very small number of people to that audition. They'd only invited four people. Oh, wow. And Joe was friends with one of their, I believe was colleagues with one of their players and said, listen, I don't know if he called or if they called him and said, is there anybody we should be listening to? I don't know exactly how it happened, but because of Joe's good word and telling them that I had been runner up at the Met, he got my foot in the door to attend the, that audition. And so I got the list about three weeks before the audition, two and a half weeks before the audition that had between 21 and 25 pieces on it. Wow. No excerpts pieces and i knew for that audition i knew there's no way i'm going to be able to prepare for this audition like i did for the met i'm not going to be able to cycle through the excerpts an infinite number of times until it's exactly the way i want it to so what did i do for that audition i spent a lot of time making sure i really listened to the repertoire and understood mm. the repertoire and just said well, i'll just it'll be what it is i'll have it make it i'll make it as good as i can and the way they do auditions there is when you audition they then wait to make a decision and they wait anywhere from seven to 10 days to think about it and process and then come back and let you know. So I got a call about 10 days later that uh, I was offered the position for a year. And that was the first time I ever had, I ever had audition success. And interestingly enough, when I auditioned for the full time job, because what happened is I went there in the fall of 1995 and uh, that fall, they had the audition for the full-time position to begin in 1996. I was just a one-year vacancy. They did advance me to the finals. And I wound up being in a room uh, asking Murray Crew, uh, the late Murray Crew, and Bill Caballero to listen to, to listen to me play some excerpts. And I played in Murray's basement. And I remember Bill and Murray saying, this is about a week before the audition. And they said to me, you know, Jim, we don't know what happened to the guy who showed up to play for us in the springtime. But he's not sitting right here. We don't know what you're doing. But, wow. but we don't know what it is that you need to do differently. But you need to do more of what that guy did. 
because I was approaching things once again like I had for the Met. That I was really focusing on everything being perfect. And I'm not saying that that's not a good thing to do, but I was missing the forest for the trees and didn't realize mm-hmm. it. I was only 20 years old. I still didn't realize what it really meant to like get the music and understand the music. And so I was working on this stuff, you know, trying to make everything right. And I go out on stage and there's the librarian, Joanne, now Joanne Vosberg. She was the proctor and she was sitting right next to me. And there's a committee out there and I walk out on stage and I sat down and she was right next to me. And I thought, I can breathe. This is okay. This, this is an audition. This isn't an audition. I mean, it's an audition, but I don't have to be perfect here. I just have to do my best. And all of that stuff, all of that angst of trying to play everything right, to play everything with the right articulation, all of that fell away and allowed me to once again focus on the music. And when I got done with the audition, they hadn't made a decision. You know, they once again, they waited about 10 days to make a decision. But those same people, Bill and Murray, came up to me after the audition and said, where was that guy 10 days ago when we were listening mm-hmm. to you? <laughs> what? Where was he? Because he wasn't there. And it was a total Jekyll and Hyde kind of performance. And I hold on to that to this day, that how important it is to have this music going on, not even going on in your head, but for you to be living in this music and understanding it so that when you're striving for your good intonation, it's always first through the lens of good musicianship and having great intonation as part of that, or Mm. great phrasing with a really consistent timbre. And, you know, part of that was just, it was youth, it was inexperience, it was trying to please people. And ultimately, where I really started to make some headway, where I really feel like, is the first point I really developed in this regard of having my own ideas, was doing my first solo CD. And I, I was, it was in 2001, I recorded my first CD titled Off-Road. I was 26. And I remember having a conversation with my wife when I was 25, saying, you know, someday I'd like to do a CD. And she said, why don't you do it now? I said, I'm just not ready. She said, well, why aren't you ready? I said, there's so much more I have to do. I've got to understand so much more. She said, well, what? I said, well, I don't know. (laughs) She said, well, why don't you call? I'd worked with Adam Abe's house uh, on one of Joe's recordings. And Adam Abe's has the fantastic Grammy award-winning producer and engineer. And I called him. And I said, Adam, I'm thinking of doing a CD. He said, that's a great idea. And he led me through the process. He said, first, you get a haul. Find out when the hall is available. Then call me back. And if I'm available, you book the hall. You book me. You've got two thirds of a recording. <laughs> and that's what I did. <laughs> so I got the hall. They were available these times. I called back. I said, are you available in October, which is nine months from now? He said, yeah, I can do October 3rd through 5th. Called the hall back. Put the hold on. Paid the deposit. Called Adam back. All set. There we go. Now, what am I going to record? I didn't want to record anything Joe had done because I wanted to have my own stuff. I didn't want to be, I'd spent a lot of my time to that point in recitals doing stuff that I'd heard him play. And I wanted to do different stuff. And through that process, I realized that my, I have a voice. I have my own voice. And I just needed to, to discover what that was and give myself permission to make musical decisions. And that if somebody disagrees with them, that's okay. And it's okay for someone to disagree with my personal musical decisions. It's okay for me to have ideas and have them disagreed with, because ultimately, they're just musical ideas. 
And that CD was really transformative for me in making that process, in helping facilitate that process. I really think that that was a really life-defining moment for me. I mean, there have been life-defining moments all along the way, but that's the biggest one in terms of my having my own thoughts and input on how to phrase and how to play the instrument. Going back to your orchestral career, so you you, you were in Pittsburgh for how long? For two years? Two years, yep. And then you won the job as Associate Principal Tremont of New York Philharmonic. That's right. So what spurred on that move? Because instead of staying in Pittsburgh, coming, you were principal there, going to an, an associate job. What was the thinking? What, was it just to be in New York, to be in the, the great New York Philharmonic? Was it being close to family? Was it a mixture of all these things? That is a really great question. And I'm really glad that you asked it because this is a... You know, I've, I've experienced a fair amount of adversity in playing in my life, and, and that move was a result of part of that adversity. So I mentioned that I got the job in Pittsburgh when I was 20, and I didn't really know what I was doing, and I didn't really know what I was doing on stage. Understand that when people, when oftentimes when you're a young player and you, and you fill the position from someone who has left, it's not uncommon that that person has been there for a period of time and that everyone in the orchestra knows that person's strengths and weaknesses. And that when they hire someone, they wind up very happy to have someone who's strong in where, that, where their predecessor may have been weak. And it Absolutely. could be loud playing, soft playing, whatever. My predecessor, Jeff Budin, was in the prime of his career. He'd been in Pittsburgh for four years. And the orchestra, the, the brass section, really loved his playing. So when he left, they were not dissatisfied with what he was doing. So. When I joined, and I was a very different kind of player at that time than Jeff was, the truth is, I think it was, it was hard for people because there was a step back in the performance on that particular position, on the principal trombone position. And I'm not ashamed of it because I was 20. I shouldn't know what I was doing. And you were around some, some big personalities. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Prince George Vosberg, Bill Caballero in the primes of their yeah. careers and much older than you at the time, right? Yeah, I mean, they were... There, Bill and George were 15 years older than I was, which, you know, now I think about, oh, gosh, 35, 36, that's so young. But, you know, when you're 20, 35, 36 seems so old. They're almost <laughs> 40. You know, wow, I'm 45 now. You know, these, they were all playing very, very well. And I had some learning to do. I had some growing to do. And the truth is, I didn't know. There were big personalities, and they're also very strong players. And I didn't have any experience playing in smaller orchestras to learn how to play louder. You know, sort of my concept was play loud so it sounds beautiful and doesn't get ugly. And not that they got ugly. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. I want to make clear. But there comes a point that you have to be willing to get brilliance in your sound and really go for it. And I was afraid of doing that. That is not my personality is to be a go-getter like that. It's to go, uh, I want to fit in. And make everything work. It's actually, I mean, it's it's why as a, as a bass trombonist, it works really well. We can do more about that at some point. But so you hear that, Nick? You're supposed to fit in as a bass <laughs> trombonist. Well, some of us are principal bass trombonists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no just comment. kidding. Move no on. Com- no comment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, but uh, but in that particular circumstance, listen. My first year was a rough year. 1995 to 1996, it was a rough year for me. And I didn't know which way is up because I was trying to play loud, 
but I didn't know how to do it. So, you know, sometimes I might get feedback from one person that says you sound sharp and feedback from another person that says, says you sound flat. And I can say, how can you be sharp and flat at the same time? But the truth is that, yes, I was both. My intonation was inconsistent. And when I was sharp, it would bother some people. When I was flat, it would bother other people. People couldn't rely on me for intonation. And so going to New York, the audition for the associate principal job was, listen, I always enjoyed New York. I enjoyed playing with Joe. It was also for me, it was kind of a potential rescue plan for, like, I don't know if this is going to work out. I better find work elsewhere. And sure enough, you know, Nitsan leaves to go to Philadelphia. His position opens up. It's like, boy, to go back to a place where I'm comfortable with, with people who's playing I know, who I know would be supportive. And it's not, I mean, listen, the Pittsburgh folks were not unsupportive, but they needed me to be able to do the job. And they didn't want me to take, they, they didn't want to have to wait for me to grow into it. And so it just wasn't the best job at the time for me. So when I got the job in the Philharmonic, it was actually, it, it yielded such a tremendous result because number one, I knew that my time in Pittsburgh was done on my own terms. I'd be starting with New York in 1997. So I didn't have to worry about what anybody thought about my playing. So I didn't have to worry about trying to make people happy. And all of a sudden, my playing really grew in the following six months I had. From that November, it was right around Thanksgiving that I got the job in the, in the, film, the associate job in the Philharmonic that between that November and the following May, my playing grew by leaps and bounds because now I wasn't worried about what everybody else thought. I was just playing. It took off all the emotional baggage. And everybody saw that I was a different player by the end of those six months. And that would not have happened. I mean, if I had not gotten the job in the Philharmonic, would that have happened? I don't think it would have. Hmm. I don't think it would have. And to be fair to yourself, I feel like, I mean... You were 20. Oh, I mean, yeah. I I can't I get nervous playing with the Pittsburgh Symphony now. You know, the to be in such a professional situation with such professional and adult responsibilities at an age when you're still where most people are still figuring out who they are, you know, and it sounds like you still were musically as well. I mean, do you do you still kind of I mean, do you beat yourself up about that ever? No. No, there's there's never a point that I beat myself up. I believe I look at myself with compassion and say, I didn't know anything and say, of course that happened to me. Of course that was going to happen. That, that, how could it, I mean, if it doesn't happen to somebody in the same situation, kudos to them. But I, I view it as a very normal, uh, normal response a normal circumstance. You know, I am naturally a people pleaser. I really care what people think about me. And so when people don't like me, I'm not going to play well. It's going to be hard if I feel, feel like people don't like me, at least at that time. I still am a people pleaser, but I'm, I'm, much, I'm more hands-off with it now than I used to be. I used to really embrace it. I mean, keep in mind, when you're, when you're 20, you're only five years older than when you're 15. Oh, I've got a 15-year-old <laughs> daughter right now, and I imagine her in five years in the same boat. It is understandable. So when I, sure. when I, look, at, when I look at the circumstances, I don't fault the folks, folks in Pittsburgh for wanting to have someone who could play the job right then. There were those who were more willing to spend some time with me to say, hey, listen, he is only 20. 
Let's give him some time. He's going to be fine. Let's give him support, some support and encouragement. And then there are others who felt like we need him to be able to do the job now. If he can't, we need to tell him what's going wrong so he can fix it. And in my case, the support and encouragement route would have yielded much better results than the let's tell him everything that's wrong so we can fix it. But a different person might need to know everything that's wrong so that they can fix it. But I can say, you know, I don't fault, I don't fault those folks at that time for what happened. Now, don't fault me for what happened as well. And as it turns out, it worked out for the best for everyone because I wound up in a situation where I was now able to be part of a section where I was doing a whole bunch of different jobs, which is something that I liked to do anyway. I like playing. When I was in high school, I used to play trumpet. I got a trumpet from a flea market and I would pull out the trumpet along with trombone just because I like to play other instruments. So now I'm the associate principal and I get to play euphonium and bass trombone and, and, and bass trumpet. It was, it was really cool. It really suited me. And I didn't have to be the lead guy. I could just fit into what's going on around. So now you're in New York and you're in this job and you just mentioned the next point we want to get to is you started playing some bass trombone. So obviously this was built into your job itself, but at what point did you start thinking, hmm, this might be a switch I'm interested in making more permanent? That is a, Nick, you guys are asking really great questions and it gives me a great opportunity to talk about me, which is one of my favorite topics to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The truth is I mentioned before going through adversity, that wasn't the end of the adversity that I dealt with. So my transition to bass trauma was brought on by a number, by a series of circumstances. First of all, I've always enjoyed, naturally, I always enjoyed playing in the low range. Ever since I started working with Joe and he said, your low range stinks, you need to fix it, and here's how. You want to sound like this George Roberts guy. This George Roberts guy? Yeah, this George Roberts. You want to sound like him. Okay, who's this George Roberts guy? You don't know who George Roberts is. Well, at any rate, the most fun that I had in the orchestra was when David would play second and I would play third. And if I played third for Alpine Symphony or third for Scythian Suite or third for Mahler Three or third for Mahler Six, whatever, whatever part I was playing third for, I enjoyed. Now, David Finlayson loves those low parts as well. So frequently he will play the third part and uh, I would play second. But there would be times that I'd play that third part and, and those were really fun. There was that. There were the opportunities I had to play bass trombone when my predecessor in the Philharmonic, Don Harwood, and of course you guys know, I'm just yeah. saying for everybody else, when Don, there was one time that there was, it was my first year in the orchestra. We were doing Shostakovich 8, and I was assisting. And for the last performance, Don just sounded like, in the morning rehearsal, it was a Tuesday evening show was the last performance. In the Tuesday morning rehearsal, he just sounded terrible. Gergiev was conducting, he just sounded awful. I just had his chest cold, he was coughing. and But he called at about 6.30 or 6 o'clock and said, Jim, I, I'm really sorry. I, I just can't come in. I can't do it. Can you cover for me? And so I moved over from assistant to, what did I cover? Shostakovich 8. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what among my first experiences was playing Shostakovich 8. My first experience is playing bass trombone. But over the course that's, of time... That's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Another good one is playing, is moving over from euphonium to bass trombone for Heldenleben. I remember that. That yeah. was probably 2005, 4? 
yeah, that makes sense. And uh, Marquis Young came in to play euphonium then, and I moved to uh, to to a bass trombone. Yeah, I I remember because they were at that point because he it was an ice storm, right? Yeah, yeah I I because I, I was at Juilliard at the time, and I it was spring break or something. It was a freak ice storm, yeah. and so Don had called me and said, "Is there any way you can come in and play bass trombone?" Because their or their initial thought was to keep as little switching as possible, keep yeah. you on your phone. And I was like, I was in Michigan, so I was like, okay, is there a flight that can get me no. there in time? <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, it's not going to work. I'm not going to be able to make it. So then, uh, eventually, it led to I heard I was like, well, I wonder what happened to that. And I heard that you moved over and played bass Ramon, and I was I wanted to be at that concert. <laughs> Nick, are you saying you're one of the main reasons that? That fate had it that Jim Markey switched to bass trombone and I knew that, decided he liked I it. I know the universe had bigger plans than me playing bass trombone that evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that. Don had moved three, I think he said he moved three miles in three hours. Yeah. And the cars yeah. were just sliding off the road. Like cars yeah. with their wheels stopped were literally sliding in front of him. Um, on the crowned roads. Oh, no. Uh, on the cra- Exactly. So that was one part. So I always, I had some great opportunities for bass trombone, playing Manfred yeah. Symphony. Oh, I mean, yeah. what, what great parts, right? Yeah. So there was that element. There was the element of, um, I went through a really difficult time playing soft and high for, for a period. There was a period of about three, four, four years in there, probably beginning, I'd say beginning of the fall of 2002 until fall of 2006 that I just couldn't, I was going through Amisha trouble. I couldn't play soft and high at all, probably to save my life. I remember a series of Brahms one performances, 12 straight performances over successive years that I chipped or airballed something in every show, every single one. You know, my history was when I went back to Juilliard in 2003, I actually was going to go back as an organ major thinking that maybe the trombone wasn't going to work out for me because I, I was having so much chalk problems. See, I mean, it's interesting hearing this because obviously I was around at this time and saw you perform in the Philharmonic countless times. So number one, you had me fooled that <laughs> you were having <laughs> troubles. I did not know that's the reason you came back to Juilliard was kind of a, like feeling a little insecure in your playing, um, especially like you said, high and soft. And that there was possibly like, okay, let's see, let's see the, the where the road on the organ leads. Um, I, I knew that you were interested in, in studying the organ, and we did some concerts with the trombone choir with you playing organ. But I didn't know it, it was led to from uh, some insecurity in the high range. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure you weren't broadcasting it. You know, no, yeah, I was not broadcasting it at the time. I think you know, I Amanda Stewart, I think uh, was probably in. I, I put her in the loop of just, you know, not feeling good about the way I was playing and feeling really bad. But that was one of the reasons that I went back to Juilliard. Ultimately, my thought to go back to Juilliard was my wife had just finished law school or was finishing out, getting ready to finish law school. And we thought I had two years of, of undergrad work under my belt. If I could get back into Juilliard, I could finish out my bachelor's. And if I did the accelerated program, I could get my master's. And in three years, I could wind up with my master's degree. Wouldn't it be a good idea to just get it done with and get it over with? So that was the thought is, let me go ahead and finish out my degree. I want to make sure I get at least my undergrad and finish it out. Because if I want to teach at a state college or university, that degree might wind up being important at some point in the future. 
But when I went back to school, so that was the initiative was to say, let me get my degree. But my thought in getting my degree is, what if I go back for my organ degree? Because maybe with my trombone playing going so bad as it is, maybe the organ will be a better avenue for me. That wouldn't have worked out. So I went back for my trombone stuff. Now, I remember that very first little brass class, Nick, that we were doing, uh, that, that was done. Joe did um, all the students who were competing that year in the concerto competition. It was the Rota competition. The one that John Lombardo won. Yes, exactly. Yep. Exactly. John Lombardo won that competition. Well, every single one of those guys got up. Every, every single one of those students, I shouldn't say guys, every single one of the students got up and played the Rota, the same segments of it, and Joe coached them. And I was at that class, and that was the first time at that point that I sort of felt like, okay, I can do nearly everything better than most people here, except for soft high playing. And every single one of them can play soft and high better than I can right now. There's got to be something wrong with that. So I need to be able to figure this out. So bass trombone was, when I first started looking at it, it, that was another way is maybe I won't have to play soft and high anymore. But the last thing about bass trombone, just getting on that topic, is, listen, as as the associate principal trombone of the New York Philharmonic, I kind of felt like a utility infielder for the New York Yankees. (laughs) And that, you know, when... The Rays come in town, maybe I'm playing third base. Or the, the Shy Sox come in town, Mom, now I'm playing second. When the Red Sox come into town, I'm on the bench. When it's playoff time, I'm on the bench. And I was tired of being on the bench for the important concerts. You know, I was tired of going on tour and playing five concerts out of 11. Or playing just the overture. You know, I, I, was, I was tired of having that experience. So... I wanted to be part, I knew that going to bass trombone, I'd have less, well, it would be, I wouldn't be playing the first trombone position, I'd be playing the third trombone position, but it would be my position. So I love playing low, I love playing bass, I wouldn't have to play soft and high, and I'd get to be a regular rotating member, sort of like being a right fielder. You know, might not get a whole, a whole lot of balls hit my way, but sometimes it's busier than others. But that's okay, because I'm out there all the time. And that's what I wanted to do. That all of those are reasons for my switch over to bass trombone. Now, one caveat is that after I decided to audition for the job, but before I auditioned for the job, I wound up making the obvious change that I needed to make in order to be able to play soft and high. So now, <laughs> so I learned how to play soft and high just in time to get ready to take a bass trombone audition. Was there, was there, that's what I was going to ask. Was there something that that just clicked or what, what was the, was it mental or was it more physical? It was I spent several years getting over the mental, psychological, non-physically related manifestations. So I got rid of a lot of the crud that had built up from not being able to play soft and high, but that hadn't fixed the issue. What fixed the issue was simply a change in my mouthpiece placement and how I was setting up. And it was that simple. Um. But getting over all the mental stuff is like <laughs> that's a big hurdle. Most of the mountain getting um, there. Yeah. That's well. That's why. I mean, Nick, you remember playing trombone quartets together from time to time at Juilliard. Sure. Yeah. Of course. That was a big reason why I wanted to do that was because it allowed me to get into a circumstance of playing where I'm not focused on me, but I'm focused on the group and I'm playing without worried about job perform being worried about job performance. Right. Let me just get over some of these psychological hurdles and just have a good time with people who are happy to play together. Sure. And that's without job performance being concerned. 
Yeah, and it, it was fun. <laughs> it was. It was. And then yeah. that that what that time that that we had together, Nick, with you and me and and Amanda and mm-hmm. who else? Who would play? Was it sometimes Lombardo or uh, Lombardo? Lombardo was there, or Jim Comiskey, Adam Pachotto. Yeah. Um, who That's else was right. there? Uh, Kyle Covington, of course. Yeah. Oh man. So when we <laughs> get together and play quartets. That was that was a huge reason for me just to want to do that, to have fun playing again. Right. Yeah. I wanted to bring up one thing. Some people know, you know, of course, that Don Harwood was kind of, he, he liked a good kind of prank in a way or like a little joke. So he came up with a scenario, you know, you were, you, you were talking about coming back to Juilliard and he came up with the idea of going to you and saying, well, we're not going to just let you in. You're going to have to audition again. And so he, he was so proud of this. He said, Oh, I told him he's going to have to, he has to play all the scales and he's got to play these excerpts and he's got to do all this. And so, you know, you say, okay, yeah, sure. I'll jump through whatever hurdle you need. And, and he told us that you got to the audition day and you get in the, get in the room and he's like, all right, F major scale, two octaves. <laughs> and that's like all he made you play is, is that, am I close with that? B flat major scale, two B octaves, B flat. and that was it. That's all I played. You're all right. How'd you do on it? I chipped a note because uh, I was having trouble playing soft and high. I chipped a note. Don was so proud of that because, of course, they were going to let you in. He just wanted to give you a little goof, you know? It was great. Oh, Don Don is great. Uh, yeah. He's just, just – and the uh, the nicknames that he gave people were oh, just yeah. fantastic. You, you're needles, right? Needles, yep, for the knitting. And I'm and, I'm pri- I'm princess. <laughs> I still don't know why, but I'm princess. I think it had to, it had to do with uh, him wanting you learn wanting you to learn how to play lighter. Is that? <laughs> no, it, or was it because you had trouble sleeping on a bed? And so it was like princess in the pea. No, you know what? He never gave me a firm answer on it. It okay. came out of nowhere. There was no circumstance. He he was just kind of like you're princess. Why? Ha! It's funny. <laughs> there is, <laughs> it was is a little nonsensical, but it's that one really stuck. Do you remember what Alan Carr was? Uh, Noah. Noah. He never emptied a spit spit valve, and when he did, a whole flood would come out. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And Dana Landis was parrot because any time that Don would say, do something, yes, Don, yes, Don, he'd just repeat whatever he said. And there was uh, uh, John Schwamm was fig leaf because he always had a towel over his shoulder. There's all these random ones. There's other ones that I don't want to say on a podcast. Um, (laughs) Incriminating evidence. But man, yeah, he he was, I mean, he is the best. He's great. Yeah. Okay. So you are in the Philharmonic playing bass Ramon. Slumming it on. Slumming it on bass Ramon. And I love it every minute of it. (laughs) So uh, did, did it, was it instantly like, okay, this is, I found something that's even more, my voice, even more what I want to be doing. Did you miss the tenor Tremone or did it feel like this is my calling? I finally found it. I found my calling. I do not miss tenor Tremone. I I mentioned before that I'm not like, I I don't want to be the guy. I don't want to be principal trumpet. And I took principal Tremone auditions, but I took them because it's like, I want, I realized that personality wise, I want to be someone that's part of the process that makes things work better. I want to make other people sound good, and I want to sound good myself. What I love is that on bass trombone, you know this, we have some opportunities where we get to shine. 
But so much of our job is just fitting within the larger context of the section and making other people sound good. It's, it's sure. working together with the tuba, sounding great as a unit, or working as the low voice of the trombones and for serving as a foundation to make that sound good, or as a middle voice of the whole low brass. And playing the, the, the third trombone, bass trombone part is such a fantastic opportunity to do all that because you have your moments to shine, but you have an awful lot of moments where you're just part, you're doing your job that's important, but it's not the most important. I love it. I totally feel like I found my calling in doing it. So you were in the Philharmonic for four, four years on Bass Ramon? Five, Five years. years on Bass Ramon? Yep. And then you took and won the audition for Boston. Yeah. What was the... What was the deciding factor on that, moving up to Boston, taking that audition, all that? That is a... It's a really good question, right? It's a really good question. I know. I think I've said that like four times now. That question, well, and the answer to that is really simple. In any job, it doesn't matter how good the job is. In any job, there are going to be things about it when you're there long enough that that you realize you can't change. You're going to go on optimistic. You're going to change a lot of things. There'll be things about it that you can't change. I'd now been in the Philharmonic for 15 years. And there was enough about it that I knew just about the whole function of the job of things that I I just wasn't going to be able to change. And it can lead to some sat, to some dissatisfaction. And sometimes we've got mitigating factors for the dissatisfaction. There, there are a lot of satisfaction aspects. But there were a few things that sort of came to a head all at the same time. And... And specifically, it's, it's less important just to know that, you know, things happen and, and my job satisfaction was pretty low at that particular point. Then when your job satisfaction is low, well, what'll keep you, what'll keep you where you are? Well, your social situation, you know, your standing within, within your, your family group, so to speak. Well, my family was living in a two bedroom apartment and we just had our third child. So we were looking at moving and whether we're looking at moving to, you know, if we're looking for, for more space, we were living in, in the Bronx in, in uh, Riverdale. If we're looking for more space, we're going to be looking further outside the city. So we'd be looking in New Jersey or Connecticut or Westchester County or Rockland County. Well, if we're looking at uprooting everybody and moving away to another community that's five miles away or 10 miles away and basically needing to leave all of our community that we have there. Is there any difference between moving 20 miles away and moving 200 miles away? So there was enough sort of dissatisfaction and knowing that we were going to move that when you combine that with the fact that Doug Yo announced his retirement, no one expected Doug to retire in 20, right. in 2012. It's like when his, when his retirement notice was announced in the AFM, the international musician, everyone looks at it and says, What? Because he was only in his mid fifties, yeah, it might have been right. fifty five or fifty six. That what's he doing? Why why is he leaving? But it was enough. It was enough for me. In fact, I'd had a discussion with with Paul Pollard about this, and I'd said, "Are you going to go to the audition?" He said, "I'm thinking about it. Are you going to go?" I said, "No." And that was in in September. But come the end of December, beginning of January, actually, I wound up calling Toby, and I said, "You know, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about." the BSO and you know, a little, little bit about the job and such. And so he and I spoke for about 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes. And then uh, my wife spoke with his wife for about two hours. And they got to ask the really important questions. Hmm. Uh, 
And, you know, the truth is <laughs> the real interview, the truth is that when we came away from those conversations, my wife said, listen, I'm in support of whatever you want to do. If you want to look into this job, I would support it. You'd have me on board. And after talking with Toby and thinking about it, you know, I looked at my wife and I said, listen, sweetheart, I feel like this is much less of a question of how could I leave the Philharmonic and much more of a question of how could I not pursue this option to join the BSO? How could I not look at this opportunity seriously? It doesn't matter where I'm coming from. You know, I expected that getting the bass trombone job, I would leave as a member of the Philharmonic for 50 years, 52 years. I wouldn't, you know, I think Stanley Drucker was there for 61 years. I wouldn't have made it for 61 years because I would have needed to be 83. So I, I wouldn't have made it that I wouldn't have made it that long, but I would have been there for a good long time. But this position here in Boston is really one where, I don't listen, we own our hall. I want to practice in the hall 24-7. I can do that. No one's going to stop. I can enter anytime I want. I can play on stage whenever I want. It's a great hall in which to play. It's a beautiful yeah. hall in which to play. And, you know, one of the things is, is that when you consider, listen, we, we, have, we all have colleagues whom we like to work with. When you're in school, it's a very unique time because everyone's kind of the same age. You're all out for the same thing. You hang out with each other. You're, you're, uh, you're in the same station in life. When I joined the Philharmonic, I was sort of between two groups. There was a group of people, the Joe Alessi, Phil Smith, David Finlayson, you know, that, that group of people who joined between the late 70s into the mid 80s. And then I joined in 1997. And then there was a group of younger people who joined beginning in the mid-2000s or so that no kids, uh, single, different station in life. So it's like there's a generation here and a generation, generation of grown kids, generation of no kids, and then there was me. And most of my colleagues that, that I could relate to were outside of the brass section. In fact, my best friends were outside of the brass section. So a situation here in Boston, and it's not a reason to leave, but it's like between Toby, Steve, and I, we're all one year apart from each other. And in our low, oh, brass, really? wow. our low brass section, we've got 11 kids among us with my 15-year-old daughter, <laughs> wow. the eldest, my five-year-old son, the youngest. And all of the kids are within that age group. So we can, although we have a lot in common on stage, we also have a lot in common off stage in terms of our family life. And so there's a built-in understanding and empathy for when you have that rough day or that challenging time or whatever and you can say hey what's going on with your kids what's going on with your families and we're all kind of in the same stage as i mentioned it's not a reason to leave an organization for the lack of that but when you have that as an option in a different place it's certainly a little bit of a magnet to know that you're going to have a community of people that's in roughly the same stage in life because it just doesn't happen very often. Mm. With Boston, I just I just wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit more about the Boston situation because we just got to that part of your story. Yeah. You have to wear multiple hats in that job. You kind of have your normal Boston Symphony hat, and then you have the Pops hat, and then you have Tanglewood, which is a little bit of everything. What part of the job, I mean, obviously that's a tough thing in a three trombone section, but what part of the job do you find the most rewarding and what part of the job do you find the most difficult? For it all, actually, I find the entire job incredibly rewarding. I find, I find the variety of the seasons really 
really a wonderful facet of the job because our typical season will run that will start in mid to late September and will run for about two and a half months until the beginning of December. And then we start holiday pops. We've got holiday pops. We do 40 holiday pops shows. We're required to play about 15 of them, but we can play more. I expect it's probably similar with the ballet, that you've got a certain number that you have to play and a certain number that you can, but it might not yeah. be exactly the same. Winter season starts again in January, and we proceed with that until the end of April. And then at the beginning of May, the pop season starts. And that lasts for about six weeks. Then we've got a few weeks off, and then we start with Tanglewood. And that goes from the beginning of July until the end of August. Then we got a few weeks off after Tanglewood, and then we're back into the regular season. So there's a rhythm and a flow to the season that actually works beautifully to gauge the time. And I love the break that we have in the middle of the season, or towards the two and a half months of the season, to just do holiday pops. Because it's like, okay, we've had some serious stuff. Now we get the, the the light, fun stuff for the audience. And the truth is, the people who are going to the holiday pops, you know what it's like. We might be doing our... 15th show or our 20th show but for the person who's in the audience they're going there for that one time yep and the truth is they love Mm -hmm. it they love it and what i love is the fact that that in our orchestra everyone looks at it that way and says you know everyone here is here to have a good time and we're going to help them have a good time it's a really effective show and we really do wish to entertain our audience and to provide some enjoyment, you know, via via the music that we have to offer. So that the most enjoyable spot for time for me is really just knowing that there is a change of seasons. I mm. love living in New England because there's a real change in season. And I love yeah. the BSO schedule because there's a real change in season. It's not like, like living in the, uh, the land of perpetual sunshine. <laughs> um, now, the most challenging aspect, the truth is, I also do a lot of committee work. So I'm the chair of our players Uh committee. And uh, so we're in a negotiation year and I'm the chair of the brass and percussion department at New England conservatory. So in terms of challenging stuff, I would say I enjoy administrative duties, but let's face it. It's a tough time to be on a committee. It's a tough time to be leading a committee. I was just, I was just talking to one of our committee members yesterday and I, cause I served, uh, I served on the New York city ballet or orchestra committee for, four or five years, something like that. And I said to him, I said, man, I do not envy anyone on a committee ever, but right now, really, I don't envy it in any orchestra because it's, it's such a tough time Mm -hmm. and there's, and it's a lot of work. It's always a lot of work, but it's really a lot of work right now trying to figure out which way is up, you know, and how we're going to come out of this thing and what we're going to be doing for the next six months of time and and you said it's a it's a contract negotiation year too yeah so it's quadruple whammy <laughs> oh man so i mean i'll say i'll say it because you probably don't hear enough thank you for your work because <sighs> your colleagues need need that and i'm sure i uh, i know this just because of being on a committee myself we don't get told that enough when we're on a committee thank you for your work because it's it's you're doing it free of charge you know so it, that's got to be really tough can you talk about that for a second just the what it's like to be on an orchestra committee. Cause I'm sure a lot of people have never even thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it, the committees are important because they, they're the direct liaison between the musicians and the management. And so if there are musician issues that come up, they can come, they come up through the committee to make sure there's an organized channel to make sure there's communication going on. You know, in terms of our committee, you know, we've got a, a mix of players, you know, a lot of young players on and some more experienced, uh, more experienced player. But there's a lot of youth and it's good to see that At the same time. It's uh, 
one of the things we try to do is represent the entirety of the orchestra. And you know, the orchestra ranges everywhere from someone who's been there for 40 years to someone who's been there, they're getting ready to start their first season. Maybe they're signing their first one. They, maybe they've just signed their first contract. You know, for me, the challenge is just making sure that we really listen to every voice and hear every voice. The way I look at it is very much an act of service. We're here to serve our orchestra and to serve our musicians and to try to do the best that we can for them. Now, as I mentioned before, that's one of the things I love about playing within a section is that I get to make the section look better or look good without being the guy. And if people say, wow, Toby sounds great, you know, maybe Toby sounds great. Toby sounds great because Toby sounds great. But maybe Toby sounds even better because Steve and Jim are also doing their jobs and making Toby sound really good. Yeah. And the best orchestral musicians can say that. You know, Joe Alessi, listen, he's phenomenal. You hear him by himself, he sounds fantastic. He doesn't need other people to make him sound great. But at the same time, he has great people to make him sound better. You know, with David and with George, uh, when Don was there, you know, I, I had my part in doing it for five years. So, you know, and of course, with Alan and the rest of the brass section, you know, we're all there trying to make everybody else sound good. Right. That kind of that reminds me of the story of when I studied with John Kitzman of the Dallas Symphony in undergrad, he would always tell us in trombone class, he's like, no, no one goes to the concert and says, man, the, the second trombonist really sucked tonight. You know, they, they say the trombone sucked. You know, and that was his way of just communicating. It's a team yeah. effort. And it's it's like when you're young and, and it's kind of like me, 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 realizing that, you know, all the great stuff that happens is is because everyone's, you know, on the same page doing something special mm-hmm. together. And that being said, I mean, I imagine, you know, right now you're, you would be at Tanglewood and you're not getting to play with your colleagues. And I imagine Tanglewood must be just a really wonderful place to bring your family in the summer and, and do all these wonderful concerts. Like how, how's, how's this whole situation feeling? Oh, and, you know, we miss being out of Tanglewood. We miss visiting the grounds. We miss the rhythm that we have out there because there's a set of summer camps that the kids are able to be part of. There's a Shakespeare camp, which they can't do. So what we're trying to do is bring the best of Tanglewood to here in Boston. So what do we do? Well, I spend a little time trying to revamp our screened in port so we can be outdoors more. So we're being, we've been eating outside, which is something actually that we haven't been able to do at Tanglewood because the places that we rent haven't had a screened in porch. So one of the big highlights of the summer at a Tanglewood is, oh, we get to have the ice cream maker. Well, guess what? We got an ice cream maker. So now we're making <laughs> ice cream at home. So little things like that to try to make the summer, you know, bring some of the best aspects of Tanglewood. Can't do the camps, but there's some online experiences which we can have and you know, try to do some things at home. Some sort of camp at home kind of things. I still remember that's like the most excited I've ever seen you is after when you came to the retreat uh, last time. So la- last summer. It was yeah. after one of the student recitals. It was last summer. It was after one of the student recitals and, and one of our host families said they were going for ice cream. And I thought, I mean, you had had a really busy day and I was like, just trying to get you home. Oh, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, we'll see. And and you're like, Sebastian, can we? Can we do an ice cream? Can 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 we can we go? You're never too you're never <laughs> like, too busy. Sure. Never too busy for ice cream. <laughs> this is a question I've been uh, What mouth exactly. do you play? <laughs> um no, I I've been asking our guests this question and I th- I like to hear both the similarities and differences in answers from our guests. What is something that you find young students or any any level student i guess doesn't do enough of 
that they need to be doing more of. Listening. Listening to really, really high quality. Listen, I'm not talking listen to trombone recordings. And I'm not against trombone recordings. I think there are a lot of good trombone recordings out there. But I think if you want to be a really great musician, it doesn't matter whether you play the violin, the trombone, the oboe, or percussion, the cymbals. Great musicianship is great musicianship, and it comes through. So you want to listen to really highest, the highest quality artists. People like, you know, I, I'm, I can think of violinists because that's who my daughter listens to. You know, you can think of the people like Lisa Batyashvili, Julia Fisher, Gil Shaham. Listen, there are some wonderful, wonderful pianists, Yefim Bronfman. You, know, you, you can go through artists from, from all sorts of instruments, but really beautiful, high-quality artists doing what they do. And to get an idea for what great people do when they phrase. And then translate that to our wonderful instrument of trombone or bass trombone. That's the thing I think students don't do enough of. But, I mean, listen, when you're playing an excerpt, I'd be content if the number of times, it happens to me more times than not, Nick, that I ask someone who plays Hungarian March. I say, all right, good. Can you tell me how this, uh, how this opens, how this particular <laughs> piece opens? And You did that to uh, me in a lesson. Uh, 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 I think with the with the wood with the woodwinds. Exactly, exactly. And and uh, I'm I'm sorry I did that, Sebastian. But I bet you I bet you learned from it. Oh, definitely. And I definitely failed that question. <laughs> so that's what I think young musicians need to do more of: listen to others. Because I think I mean maybe they're listening to themselves a lot, but I think listening to others to get a model for what it could be. I think that's that's what young musicians need to do need to do more. And, and to your point, we I remember us talking about this last summer, and you brought up a great point. I don't know if you remember, but we asked, you know, why isn't it happening? And you said you made a really interesting argument that we, you know, young people have more access to recordings than ever before in history, but they're listening a lot less. And you think that's related because they know they can listen to it anytime. There's this lack of urgency. So you never, you're always just like, oh, I can listen to it whenever. And then you just end up never doing it. That's exactly, I think you're absolutely right at that. Or if, I guess if you're really on what I said, I think I'm absolutely right on that. Yeah, you're you're (laughs) absolutely right on that. (laughs) The the truth is, I think there very much is truth to that because, oh, I don't have to do that now. I can do that later. Whereas, I mean, listen, when I was in school, if I wanted to listen to something, I would have to go to the listening library, check out the recording, go take it, plug it in, listen to it, then return it. And kind of there's almost no excuse now because you could pop it on and put it on repeat play. Well, it's it's this this transcends music. Obviously, it's the same with any information out there. You know, just because all this information is at our fingertips doesn't mean we suddenly know everything. There has to be the thirst and quest for this knowledge in the first place. And I think that even though it's easier to access it, doesn't necessarily mean that we are retaining more information, be it, you know, the history of history of uh, the United States or uh, the history of jazz or whatever, you know, we're not seeking it out like we should, or I'm speaking as a general population here. No, and um, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think that the biggest issue with what sort of where we are as a society as an American-sized society right now, 
is looking for the sound bite, looking for the, you know, for the 280 character quote that no one is ever going to be able to argue with because it's perfectly right about everything. And we fail to see that there's so, it is such a gray world. And when you actually start to listen to people who have views that might not be your own, you can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. But too much of social media allows us to not need to listen to other people. In fact, you wind up in your own echo chamber of only seeing those posts that you want to see. And if you see a post that you don't want to see, you dislike it or, or, you, or block it or block it. And it's incredibly polarizing. And I would love to see us really strengthen the idea of having conversations with people rather than expressing our views in 280 characters or less. Wow, that that's yeah. I don't think we could agree more. That yeah. sounds that sounds like your stump a speech. Bit broken right now. <laughs> like if you're you're running running for uh, Congress, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, there's already there's already there's already Ed Markey in the Senate. There's so. an Ed Markey in the Senate. Ed Markey. Oh, Ed Markey. Yeah. Your your <laughs> uncle. Pro- your uncle I'm sure there's a relation somewhere. I I found out recently that I've got some relation who's from the Mayflower, but I'm not sure who it was. Doesn't really. Oh. It, it's. It's not like any badge of honor. It's just kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. What do you what do you do with that information now? Right. Apparently, ten percent <laughs> of the population is of, is uh, descendants of the Mayflower. I read somewhere. And we're also all descendants of Genghis Khan. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's for very different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and on, yeah. on that note, yeah. Jim, it was it was a real honor to talk to you. Uh, I think a lot of great information about how you got from point A to point point Z here, and <laughs> it was really great to hear your wisdom, which uh, I, I'm always happy to hear more of. Oh, thank you. I had a real pleasure. Uh, you know, thank you for your uh, magnanimity and uh, mm-hmm. listening to my life story and asking about my life story. I haven't talked about myself this much well since this morning, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so but really thank you you asked you asked some really great questions and i'm i'm really glad to have had the opportunity to to share some aspects of my life for for anyone who might also be going through some adversity whether in their playing or their circumstances and be able to say you know there is light at the end of the tunnel you know i especially feel that if people are going through trouble with their playing playing issues are fixable the vast vast majority of playing issues are fixable we just need to figure out how to do it. So it leaves you with a lot of hope having had the experiences that I have. That's great. Absolutely. And and I can, you know, I've told you this before, but I, I can safely say you changed my life when I met you and started studying with you. And I owe a lot of my career success to you and so much what you did for, for me that, you know, a lot of people will probably never know about except all the things I'll probably say on the outro. <laughs> but again, thanks so much. And we have probably a million more questions. So we'll, we'll snag you back on here at some point if we can Sounds convince good. you. But hang in there and say hi to Elizabeth for me. And we'll do. Everybody says hello. Great to talk to both of you guys. Uh, Nick, please say hello to Danielle. We'll do. And best to you guys. You too. Stay healthy. just love me some Jim Markey, don't you? Yeah, he's a pretty pretty lovable guy. Especially, you know, a lot of people that haven't gotten to be around him, you know, he's 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 a superstar in our field. So I mean he's he's can be intimidating to a lot of people, but once you get to talk to him one on one, he's incredibly down to earth, very engaging, very thoughtful, very nice guy. Yeah, definitely. And he's just he's very he's a sweetheart. 
<laughs> That's, yeah, he's, he's such a nice person. And, and yeah, like you said, thoughtful. He really, you know, dug into some issues and such a good speaker. I've always found him to be so thorough. And that's partially what makes him such a good teacher is his ability to communicate anything. You know, you ask him a question about, uh, you know, how was your day yesterday? And he'll, he'll give you a full response with really in detail, in detail details. <laughs> good, good speaking, Nick. <laughs> I think, yeah, I honestly, I think that's why, I mean, we didn't get into it, into the interview because I wanted to focus more on his life, obviously. But when I studied with him, I studied with him for grad school and, you know, it was, it was kind of a turning point in my life. I, I'd been in school for a while. I was still waiting to figure out, you know, what my place in the world, in the trombone world was. And he kind of brought it all together for me. I liked how, how open he is about being an introvert. I classify myself the same way, even mm-hmm. though, you know, we started this podcast where I'm talking all the time. <laughs> and for some reason, I think it was just the perfect timing as far as the level of playing I was at, plus the level of maturity I was at at that point, where he was the perfect teacher for me. How I de- Because people ask me what it's like studying with him all the time. And, and the way I describe it is he was the perfect balance of encouraging, but demanding. And you see a lot of teachers that, you know, want to just pat you on the back all the time. You you see some teachers that just want to be very strict all the time. And for me, he found that perfect balance in the middle. He convinced me I could do things that I didn't realize I could do and showed me how to do it and then expected me to do it. And th- those were things I needed, and that's that's really what I model my own teaching after. Well, I can go into a few stories that he doesn't – I don't even know if he remembers, even though he has kind of like a Rain Man memory <laughs> about every single thing that's ever happened. But there, there's so many just things he didn't have to do. You know, right after school, I, I was about to take an audition, and I called him for a lesson. And then right before the lesson happened, some unforeseen financial events happened, and I basically only had enough money for rent and I I just called him. I was just like, I can't, I can't have this lesson. I'm sorry. I really apologize for wasting your time. He's like, who, who would I be if I'm not going to give you a lesson when you're in this situation, (laughs) you know? And it's definitely, you know, a a pay it forward kind of thing. And, And he gave me the lesson, even though he didn't have to, he, he would do things like call and leave me voicemails after, if I had a tough playing day in a, in a rep class and I was about to fly out for an audition, he would call and just leave a voicemail that was just full of just really encouraging things and showing that he believed in me. And that that stuff just, you just remember that stuff always. And when you have someone like that saying that to you, you know, you think you can do anything. And when I started studying with him, everything just kind of came together. Things got a lot simpler. And every audition I took, I, I pretty much advanced at most everything I took after I started studying with him. And after all that, it culminated in getting the biggest opportunity of my life to that point. So he was going to record his first bass trombone album, which ended up being called On Bass. And he asked me, then a grad student studying with him, if I'd like to play on a couple tracks in an ensemble, which of course I said yes to. It was the entire New York Phil section, uh, members of the Met, basically the top high-end New York freelancers. And here I am, this grad student with not a ton of professional experience, battling imposter syndrome, trying not to pee my pants, asking myself if this was really happening. I always compare it to this. Do you remember the dream team from the Olympics? Yeah. 
they always had all, all like all the NBA All Stars, and then they'd invite one college kid to be on the team to basically wave towels. So I was Christian Leitner, <laughs> but I practiced my butt off for it. And you know, I'm standing next to Paul Pollard. I doubt he even remembers that was me at that time. And I still remember the intensity, you know, like Joe Alessi, I'm like looking into his eyes, like I'm the only one in his eye line and he's like cutting me off for something. And it's just like, you will cut off now. You know, it just the intensity with which they worked was a real lesson for me at that point in my career. But yeah, the, you know, the fact that he believed in me enough to give me an opportunity on something so important to him meant the world to me. And it's a memory I'll have forever. Yeah. I I didn't study with him like you did, but I was around him quite a bit because of the time that we were technically in school together. Now, to be clear, he wasn't in school the way I was in school at that point because he had a full-time job playing in the Philharmonic, but he was there. He was coming to low brass class. He was playing not all the time in trombone choir, but frequently, and and a lot of times he'd play organ if we had a piece for organ in trombone choir. So he was participating in the trombone department and, of course, going to classes, taking the prerequisite theory and ear training, on and on and on, all that stuff. He was doing that stuff, and I didn't have any classes with him. I don't remember any classes with him outside of the trombone field, but he was around. And it was very interesting for me to hear him talk about those quartets that we would play because we'd frequently get together and play quartets and trios, but we certainly didn't think Jim Markey would start doing that with us. And it started becoming somewhat regular where he would show up. I don't know. I don't know how often it was, maybe once a week or something like that. And we would play quartets and just sit down and kind of cycle through stuff and change parts and that sort of thing. I didn't know that he was struggling with the high range at that point. Number one, it certainly didn't sound like it. Uh, Number two, he wasn't broadcasting that. And I didn't know that he was taking that time to work through something. You know, as a student, you look at someone like Jim Markey and you're like, you don't even, it didn't even cross your mind that he could be having problems like that. And then the biggest thing that happens is when you get to the other side and you yourself are a professional, it's not like problems go away. You know, you, you have playing problems, you have, uh, you know, whatever financial problems you have, whatever it may be that's eating at you that day. And we're constantly always working through it. So I guess it was, uh, refreshing to hear that at that time he was dealing with something in his playing, just like the rest of us were. Obviously, he was dealing with it at a much higher level than we were, in my opinion, but he was still still struggling nonetheless. And I'm not saying that to be like basking in someone else's uh, discomfort. I'm saying that it's refreshing to know that someone so great that you idolize does have kind of normal problems like we do. Um, that, that, that can be a scary thing, you know, being, you know, his particular issue, he was he was losing confidence with soft high playing. And it's one thing going through school and having some issues, but you know, he's associate principal in the New York Philharmonic at the time. And everyone's looking at you to be this, this thing and to be like basically perfect all the time. And that's just another added pressure. And we've talked about it. I think a, a sign of a professional, a sign of a certain level is not how good you sound on your best days, but how do you manage your your days where it's just not feeling right? Because, you know, you can't change that concert. You can't change that recital. 
So when people can't tell when you're having a bad day, that's when you should really pat yourself on the back. The the thing to add to that is when people can't tell you're having a bad day, it also doesn't mean that you're not having a bad day. And it's it's hard to kind of step back and see the the forest or the trees, see that it's like, okay, in the grand scheme of things, even though it felt terrible, I sounded good. And that's not for nothing. And that's a tough place to get to because it takes a lot of self-realization. And that's why and one of the things I do with my students a lot is when I, if, when I'm starting with them, especially to kind of establish this dynamic in, in our relationship is to ask after they play something, what went well and what didn't go well. And I think a lot of people are kind of blindsided by the, what went well part of that question, because we're used to just saying this went wrong, this went wrong, blah, blah, blah. And it's not only to give you a little bit of a confidence boost, which I think is important for a lot of players, not everyone, but most players have confidence issues to some degree. So it's a boost of confidence. Like, well, I think I played the legato lines very, very well and and in tune and very, very smooth. And so, okay, you've established something that went well. Now, you know, at least for this moment, you don't need to work on that thing. So it, it kind of serves multiple purposes. And that's where the self-awareness comes in when we're talking about having a bad day is not always focusing on, oh, this felt terrible. It's like, okay, well, what went well? And if you if you lose sight of that, it's very easy to go down into a dark place with your playing because it's, you know, we're always just self-criticizing and that's what we need to be doing, but we need to have constructive criticism even when we're talking to ourselves. Yeah, and you hear that old phrase that you're your worst critic all the time. And it's generally true depending on the person. And it's hard because when you're trying to get better, of course, you need to be focusing on what you need to do to get better, what your weak areas are, how you're going to focus on those weak areas. But what I see a lot of performers and, and students not know how to do is to switch. Once you're on stage, you can't have that mindset. Right. That, that's the time to go for it. That's the time to appreciate yourself, to know what you sound good on, to be confident, to go for it, evaluate it later. But if your brain is occupied by these ne- negative thoughts and, and things you don't want to sound like, first of all, you're not going to have fun. And secondly, you're not going to play as well. You simply won't. And it takes a while to kind of get into that mode and, and to let go. But you got, you got to do it. And once you do and once you get in the habit of doing it, it, it's so rewarding. I agree. That's that's one of the hardest things for me to do, to be honest, is to stay in the moment. But when I do, I, I'm definitely... I'm paid for it and <laughs> not, not, not literally, but I'm rewarded for being present and being positive rather than letting things snowball. Cause it's so easy to do to let things snowball. It's like, Oh, I missed a note. And it's like, well, when you're thinking about missing that one note, your chances of missing the next 10 notes are pretty high, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's letting that kind of go, you know, water off a duck's back sort of thing. Just let it go, deal with it later. All of this easier said than done. but. Circling back to Jim in our conversation, I think that his attention to detail in life, I don't want to just say Tremont playing because I think in his whole life he has a huge attention to detail, is why he's so good. And I've noticed this in the Instagram, Instagram he's been doing 365 days of practice. 
And some days he'll post these videos of him just practicing, not performing something, literally just breaking it down and circling over the same exercise or the same passage over and over and over and over again, and then moving on. And I'll make my students watch that being like, hey, if he can do it, and if he's still doing it, you can do it too, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's not, a, it's not about the quantity that you practice, the quality. So yeah, I, I just, I've always appreciated that about him. And I think this is really cool what he's doing on Instagram. Yeah. And it's nice for people to hear what I was hearing for two years in lessons. Cause it, it would, it would just be silly sometimes, you know, he still has one of the best boleros I've ever heard on bass trombone that mm. he would love to demonstrate in lessons. I still remember one time I had a lesson, I think it was at 8 a.m. once. It was a really early lesson because they were about to go on tour. I had just started to learn the Tomasi Concerto. And this is, you know, I started studying with him basically right when he started at the fill on bass trombone. And so he was playing bass trombone in every lesson, but I mean, he could demonstrate anything. So he was just like, oh, you haven't really started working on this yet. Why don't I just play it for you? And you can you can just have this recording to study while I'm gone. And he plays the entire Tomasi concerto, which is not low. No. On bass trombone at 8 a.m. in the morning. And his warm up consisted of, I still remember, he pulled his horn out of the case. He's like, bop, 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 bop. Okay. Plays the whole first move of the Tomasi. Like, perfect. I mean, it was, it was beautiful. It was <laughs> no problems. And I'm just like, dude, <laughs> get out of here. You know, and it's one thing I did want to talk about which was kind of a, a theme of the interview. I, what I think is really interesting, what I started to think about while we were talking to him, was he has this really interesting combination because he, he obviously has this profound talent. And, you know, I used to describe it as when people asked me, I said he, he literally lives in the matrix. He just sees and hears everything. He would sight sing these in, in basically impossible bichetudes just by ear, and he hears everything so clearly in his head. So he has this incredible ability but it's married to this person who doesn't necessarily want a lot of attention, doesn't want to be the alpha no. in every scenario. So he's got these like abilities that most people would need to use in a principal position or need to use in some sort of control leadership position. But he wants to use that in a support position, which makes sense why when he's really young, he gets these really high profile you know, principal jobs, but it's tricky for him to navigate mentally. Right. Well, you know, I would say that uh, he switched to bass Ramon to finally be in a leadership role. Just, you know, power from the bottom. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So we have a new question from iTunes. Again, thank you so much to everyone that has commented and left us a review. Uh, we really appreciate it. Every time I open it, uh, it's incredibly humbling. We've had so many people write in and it really means the world to us. So the new question we have today, Nicholas, mm. is from Riley. And the subject is very refreshing. Thank you. Along with playing and listening to the trombone, I also enjoy interviews to understand other players' stories and perspectives. Along with Michael Davis and Ryan Beach interviews, this is a wonderfully insightful addition to Brass Interviews. And I'm always eager for a new episode. Thank, Thank you very much. That's you. great company to be amongst. My question for Sebastian and Nick is, what do you think is the most important yet underutilized learning method in the practice room? Thank you for a wonderful podcast, Riley. Thank you for your question, first of all, Riley. Do you want to take it first? Yeah, I'll take it. Um, okay, so underutilized and what was the second part? 
What do you think is the most important yet underutilized? Important yet under, under underutilized learning method. Well, it's it's hard to say because underutilized, it, it to me says like oh um, this is a secret. <laughs> uh, <laughs> underutilized and important recording yourself. I mean, everyone says to do it, just do it. <laughs> you know it makes you better. You know it's like anything else. The the things that um are hardest to do are probably the best things for you. So I would say that recording yourself, getting deeper into it. Uh, another just technique that I like to use is uh, using a lot of flutter tongue. I, f- I find f- like flutter tongue through like a Bordoni or something like that, or just not the whole thing at once, but maybe a couple phrases at a time. It gets you to helps you move your air. If you're able to consistently flutter, then you have consistent air. And so that's the, that's the thought process behind that. Some people can't flutter though, flutter tongue though. So it's, it's not usable by everyone, but I find that to be an incredibly helpful way to work through moving your air, especially in legato. Yeah. I, I actually can't flutter tongue, but I can do that weird throat vibration the, the thing. Growl. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, I'm ashamed to my Latin roots, but um, <laughs> it's still, I can still get the same effect and, and still that that's incredibly useful. And that's a good quick fix often when you feel like that air chop ratio is, is bad. Yeah. But I like what you said. It's, I think, I don't want to make this like a get off my lawn generational thing. I'm still, I'm in my thirties, but something I've noticed just with the advancement of technology is we're, we're so used to having quick fixes for things. And instead of, oh, there's some thing I've never heard of that some app I need to download to use for practicing that's going to put me above everyone. I think kind of what you're saying is it's the stuff we know already, but Instead of focusing on something you don't know about, focus on all these things that you know you should be doing. Are you doing it to 100%? Are you recording yourself as much as you can? Are you right. playing with drones? Are you, are you, you know, I would focus on maximizing all those aspects. Recording is the biggest one. Of course, metronome, of course, tuner, of course, drones, um, playing for people, listening, which we will never say enough of. Um, that can be part of your practice. You know, listening can be part of your practice day, especially when you're ha- you're kind of in a rut and things aren't working well. You can still have a productive day. That used to be my biggest goal is those practice days where you feel like nothing's working. You're making zero progress. I just want to find one little thing to still feel like I, I did something that day that pushed me above. And if that's just listening to a new recording I'd never listened to, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, the recording thing, I, I think it's, it's not a matter of recording yourself in and of itself. It's making a practice around, I'm going to record myself and I'm going to listen to it. So with students or anyone, really, I think that it's more about doing it consistently, no matter the amount. It can be, I'm going to do 10 minutes a day of, of recording myself and listening back. On a side note, that's not how I structure it, but again, it's more about the consistency. What I like to do a lot of is, you know, I'll I have decent recording equipment and all that, but for just reference points, for pitch, for time, and for um, evenness of sound, I'll just use the voice memos on my phone, record myself, and do little snippets. Like if I'm working through this one little passage, ten seconds recorded, listen back. Oh, okay, there's the problem. Do it again. And and if you look through my voice memos on my phone, you'll see like 
thousands of recordings and every now and then I'll have to go through and, and start deleting them because I just forget to in the time. But that's, that's the consistency I've built up is if I'm really working on something, I'd rather just record frequently in little snip snippets and listen back right away as part of my practice. So thanks again, guys. Uh, I know it's been a little while since the last one we had our online retreat, but we're going to be back to normal. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or review on iTunes with a question or a topic you'd like to discuss, if you'd like, and follow us at Trombone Retreat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and our website, tromboneretreat.com. Also, feel free to shoot us an email at tromboneretreat at gmail.com. You're noticing a, a trend here, as we love hearing from you. Um, you can also follow Nick at bassrombone444 on Instagram, and me, me at JS. <laughs> A lot of good food picks, and me at js.vera on Instagram and at Sebastian Vera on Twitter. Maybe I'll make those the same one these days. But yeah, thanks again, guys. It was uh, it was a fun time, and we'll be back at you with some more uh, interviews soon. Stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> and as always, retreat. Why are we gonna are we gonna do this whisper no. thing every time? I think some people get there's probably some people like a very small amount of people that are like really like it, and then the majority that just like why do they keep doing that? Why do they keep whispering? Let me try this one. Retreat yourself. Oh, you did like a distance thing. Yeah, I, like I started far away and moved into the mic. Wait, do the opposite now. Retreat yourself. <laughs> <laughs>